we love stories like Joseph. Who doesn't love the story of Joseph? You know, this guy who, who has tragedy in his life, but then it ends up on a positive note. We love the endings with the positive note. We love the happy endings, don't we? Joseph. Job is another great one. Even though, even though he's at one point, he's in the ashes of his house with nothing left. All of his children are dead. And he, he's covered in head to toe with boils. And he's taking shards of pottery to itch the boils because they're so horrible. He's restored at the end. We love those stories. Those stories, they give us hope about this life. That, that no matter how horrible the situation is in this life, there is hope. But oftentimes, we skip the stories where life seems hopeless. So we don't talk as much about Jeremiah. You know, the prophet who God uses to tell uh, Jerusalem that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah, he, he, he hates this idea. He loves Jerusalem. He loves his people, but he goes to his people and he tells them, God says, thus saith the Lord, this place is going to get destroyed. Well, you could tell the people of Jerusalem didn't like that. So they imprison him. And he's tortured. And eventually he's released and, and he writes a book called Lamentations where he sits probably on the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, and he's looking down at Jerusalem as Babylon comes in and tears the city apart, destroys the temple that he loves so much, and we think, man, maybe there will still be some vindication for Jeremiah. But he gets taken away to Egypt, and while he's in Egypt, he's killed. For Jeremiah, there was no hope on earth. No hope in this life. And oftentimes we skip those stories because we like the stories about hope here and now. But I think Jeremiah's story is so much more important because it's not about the hope here and now. It's about the hope for eternity. And that was where Jeremiah's hope was. It wasn't in this life. It was in eternity. And that's what we're going to study today as we look at Mark. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark 10. We're going to start off in 46. We've been walking through this series, He is Greater Than. We've been walking through it. I shouldn't say walking. We've been running through the book of Mark. We started right after Christmas, and my plan is to end on Easter. So we'll end this series on Easter, and we're going to spend a lot of time on the Passion Week. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, I've got uh, what I think is the schedule of Passion Week. None of the Gospels actually lines out like, and on Sunday Jesus did this, and on Monday Jesus did this. So you kind of have to take all of the Gospels together and start piecing them together. So there's a little bit of debate about what exactly happens, or what exactly the schedule is for the Passion Week. This is, uh, I'll be honest with you, this is what uh, my seminary professors taught, and I just thought that they were really brilliant men, so I just kind of like followed along with them. 
Although, you know, there's some places where I question, but this is, this is the schedule that was developed at the seminary I attended, and it's the one that I really believe. So, so we're going to spend about the next month, just a little over a month, on the Passion Week. So if you think about three and a half years of ministry that we looked at throughout Mark, two and a half years were the great, Gal- or I should say the public presentation, 18 months of that was the great Galilean ministry where he went to Galilee and he publicly presented himself for two and a half years, publicly presented himself to Israel as the Messiah. Two and a half years of that, and it culminates in two rejections. And after those two rejections, we have a six-month period called private preparation, where he takes the apostles and the disciples aside, and he starts to prepare them for his death. And this took so long for two reasons. One is he couldn't get alone with them. He was so widely popular. Everywhere he went, the crowds gathered. And we see that throughout Mark. Everywhere Jesus goes, the crowds gather. But number two is the idea of the Messiah was so ingrained in their heads that he was the political deliverer. The disciples just couldn't grasp that he was going to die. And so, for six months, he keeps telling them, and even after the private preparation, he keeps telling them, I'm going to die. And what's their response? Hey, Jesus, when you're ruling, can we rule with you? Wait, guys, you don't even understand. I'm going to die. Yeah, so when, you, so when you're ruling, can we rule with you, man? No, you guys don't even understand. And so that happens for six months, and, and, and it culminates in the transfiguration where he takes John and James and Peter up to the mountain, and he transforms in, for, in front of them, and, and he's filled with majesty and glory. And he gives them this hint of, hey, look, I'm going to die, but look, I'm, I'm God, because they just couldn't understand. And when we look towards the, the Passion Week and the cross, you've got to think that, God, that Jesus just gave them this huge gift here. And he comes back down and we enter into the time of a mixed focus where he goes down into Judea and Perea and he starts preaching the gospel there. And yet he's still preparing the disciples for his death. And, that's, and then that culminates with the raising of Lazarus. And at that time, that seals the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, all the politically important people that's, that brings them all together, unites them all together to kill Jesus. And he goes back up into Galilee, and that's where we caught him last week as he starts to make the pilgrimage back down with tens of thousands of Galileans coming back down to Judah, to Jerusalem for the Passion Week. So that's where we're catching up with him today. If we go to the next slide, please, we'll see the map here. I know it's not the greatest map, but it is a map. Uh, so this is Jerusalem here. So he uh, raises Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, which is about right here. Then he travels on over, comes all the way up top to Galilee, the Jezreel Valley. He's going to make the pilgrimage. And I think it's so important for us to understand, if we want to understand the triumphal entry, we have to understand that Jesus, oh man, when you think about Jesus and his humanity and how he planned things out, it just blows your mind. Because so often we just go to the default of like, oh, that's deity, oh, that's deity, oh, that's deity. Jesus just, you know, he used his Godhead to make things happen. But I think there's a lot that we just dismiss as that, as deity, and and don't even think about how much 
planning. In his human form, he did. So he goes back up, and this whole travel, all the way down through the Jordan River Valley, he's got tens of thousands of people crowding around him, and he's continuing to preach that he's the Messiah, and he's continuing to to do miracles that authenticate that claim. So these tens of thousands of pilgrims are going down to Jerusalem with him, thinking, oh man, this is it. Think about it. 400 years of oppression, 400 years of other countries, of Gentiles ruling over you, 400 years of Gentiles snatching your daughters, kidnapping your kids, 400 years, and now the Messiah is here, oh boy, it is on, you are excited, and that's what all, whoops, I'm tripping here, that's what all these pilgrims are doing, they're marching down here with them, and they're getting excited. And that's where we're going to catch up with Mark in uh, chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho. All right, so they've crossed the river, the Jordan River here, and they've come into Jericho. Now, if you remember back in Joshua, what does Joshua do? You remember the, the song about the walls falling down, right? So the walls fall down in Jericho, right? And what does Joshua do? He curses the city so that no one would ever build on it again. Wait, Jesus is coming into Jericho? It's named Jericho, but it's actually built a few miles west of the original Jericho. You can go, if you go to Israel, you can go to the original Jericho site. It's a, it's a tell. A tell is just where old cities were. It's buried. It's kind of like a cake. You can dig into it. You can go examine it. There's still a Jericho there today that has now grown up around the tell. But that old tell where old Jericho that was destroyed still hasn't been built upon. So this Jericho is a few miles west of the original Jericho. So he comes into Jericho. Jericho is about 825 feet below sea level. Just mark that in your head, 825 feet below sea level. And as he was leaving Jericho, so Mark doesn't spend a lot of time in Jericho. You you know, if you read some other accounts, you know that Jesus spends a little bit of time there, but but Mark's going to blow through there. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So we've got this blind beggar. He's sitting by the roadside because he knows the pilgrims are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and this is a good place to beg. He needs some money. He's going to sit aside, and he's going to beg for that money from all these pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, so we can see how popular, how widely popular Jesus is. Even this blind beggar in Jericho, where Jesus was doing most of his works in Galilee, Even this blind beggar now knows of him, and not only knows of him, but trusts that he can do something amazing for him. So, he begins to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Come on, man, we want to hear Jesus. He's going to do some great things. Quit quit pestering him. Telling him, be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. Now, this title, Son of David, is a reference back to to a messianic title. It's this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak... He sprang up and came to Jesus. So he threw off this outer garment that they had. Oftentimes Jews carried an outer garment, which they would use as a blanket, and then they have an inner garment. So he's got this blanket basically on him, 
Think of like a Snuggie. You guys remember the Snuggies where you put your arms through and it's like a blink? Anyways, he throws off his Snuggie and he sprang up. So he leaps up and he comes, he makes his way to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do? And I think, Jesus, you know you can heal him. You know this man's mind. Why do you ask this question? He wants this man to pinpoint, to exclaim his faith in him. This man, if if he didn't have faith in Jesus, if he didn't believe in Jesus, he might have just said, oh man, here comes this really wealthy man. Just give me a lot of money. In fact, other wealthy men would have faced that exact request. But Jesus wants him to confess And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. We've been talking a lot about how throughout Mark we see the deity of Christ. And we see it here. The lame will leap. The blind will see. The deaf will speak again. The mute will speak again. And we see here him recovering his sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, we've seen through Mark different blind men that have recovered their sight through Jesus in different ways. Jesus sometimes spits on them. Covers their eyes in mud. But Jesus never had to do any of that. Here he simply says, doesn't even have to touch him. Simply says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now there's, this on the way has two meanings to it. One is, although he could have gone his way and gone anywhere he wanted, this man decides to follow him to Jerusalem. And secondly, the way was, the, was what Christians first started referring to, them, to themselves as. So think of the Mandalorian. Any Mandalorian fans here? This is the way. Yeah. When Jen and I have to do diaper changes. We got two babies in diapers right now. This is the way. Go do the diaper. All right. So, so that's what they referred themselves as. The way. That was what original Christians called themselves. And so he's following him on the way. So he's going to Jerusalem, following in his footsteps, but he's doing more than just following him because he wants what Jesus has to offer because he knows that he can do great things. He's following him because he wants to commit his life to him. Jesus has done something great for him, and he is forever grateful to Jesus, and now he is going to be a disciple, not just following him physically, but following him spiritually, aligning his life with Jesus. So he starts to follow him. Now, when they enter, or drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, so this is the final destination is Jerusalem, right? Bethphage is next, and Bethany is the, is the furthest town away from it. Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. We need to make note of that. 
Jerusalem is about 2,675 feet above sea level. So if you think about that hike, about how many thousands of feet are they going from below sea level up above? About 3,500 is, is the amount that they're hiking there. All right. So Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So Bethphage and Bethany are on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. That would be Bethphage. They're in Bethany at this point. Bethphage is going to be the, the village ahead of them. And, sorry, and uh, immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them, just as Jesus had said. They let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. All right. So what's going on here? A lot of people would say uh, that this is, once again, Jesus in his deity forcing things to happen. But we don't need to automatically just assume this is Jesus' deity. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen, planning the whole thing out, planning out his Passion Week, most likely last time he was in Bethany, planned for this to happen. Think about Jesus in his strategic way planning this out. Jesus knowing the cross is coming. The cross was not just an unfortunate event. A tragic, unfortunate, unforeseen event. Jesus is planning it all along. And so it lines up as he's wanted it to. He's planned it ahead of time. And this cult is a reference back to Zechariah 9.9, where we know that the Messiah is going to come riding on a donkey. And so they've lined it up, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. So they're making a makeshift saddle for him, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the roads, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So this is Jesus publicly presenting himself to Israel as their king. It is very clear, it would come not just off of Zechariah 9.9, but to ride the donkey meant that he was a king. Most, uh, almost everyone that was making this travel, almost all, every single pilgrim was walking. Now, during, oftentimes we think of a king like riding on a horse, and we think of like Lord of the Rings style, you know, these big gigantic horses with these big gigantic men with these big gigantic swords. But for a king to ride in peacetime, meant he would ride on a donkey. Horses were for war. Donkeys were for peace. So this is very symbolic, showing that Jesus is king. He's presenting himself as king, and it's so clear that all these pilgrims that have been traveling with him, these tens of thousands of pilgrims, they recognize it. And so what do they do as they recognize it? They start to throw their cloaks down on the ground for him. That's also symbolic 
That is them paying royal homage to their king. They're saying, Jesus is the king. And then they start to shout, Hosanna, which is, uh, uh, literally means save now, but for the second temple Jew, it was just a sound of rejoicing. Hosanna, Hosanna. We still say it today. It's kind of like us saying, Hallelujah. So that's what they're doing. They're saying, Hallelujah, Hosanna. They are so joy-filled because their king has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's so clear that this is Jesus publicly presenting himself as the king, that even if we, if we take the Luke account, even Luke has the Pharisees saying, they recognize it and they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. You've gone too far. You're claiming yourself as king. To quit it. And Jesus says, if they were silent, even the stones would cry out. This is Jesus clearly demonstrating that he is the king. So he enters into Jerusalem, and he went then to the temple, and he had to look around, and it becomes very anticlimactic. It was already late, so he goes back to Bethany with the twelve. Why did, every night throughout the Passion Week, he's going to go back to Bethany. That is his safe place. In Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin wants to kill him. In Bethany, they want to protect him because he raised Lazarus from the dead. They, they recognize him as the Messiah. So as the crowds go back to Bethany, he goes with them, and he needs to have crowds with him all week long. If the Sanhedrin catches him alone, he's dead. So throughout the rest of the week, he's playing this chess match with the Sanhedrin. He knows they want to kill him. So he's playing this chess match. And he's got to be with the crowds, and he's got to be in safe places. All right, let's go to the next slide. So he comes into Jerusalem. I, I want us to understand Jerusalem a little bit, and then I'm going to wrap this up. I want us to understand Jerusalem a little bit. This is a map of Jerusalem. I know it looks like just a bunch of squiggly lines. Uh, this over here is the Mount of Olives. So Bethany would be about here. Bethphage is about here. This is the Kidron Valley. If you want to understand Jerusalem, think of three valleys and two hills. Kidron Valley. In fact, during... Passover, there was, this is the Temple Mount here. They would drain all of the blood out into the Kidron Valley, and there were so many sacrifices that the Kidron Valley would run red with blood. This is the Temple Mount. This is the city of David. This is Jerusalem proper. When David first takes over Jerusalem, this is it right here. And it's so thin that it's about 20 steps to cross it. You can hold your breath and cross it really easy. Uh, this is uh, a wall that was built by Hezekiah. Later on, uh, King Herod the Great is going to build a wall that comes all the way around. This is the western hill. So you think of the eastern hill, the western hill, Kidron Valley, Central Valley, Valley of Hinnom. That's, that's Jerusalem right there. Let's go to the next slide. So I've got a couple pictures of it as well, just to give you some uh, idea of how big the Temple Mount is. It's about 35 acres. This is it right here. It is now occupied by Muslims. This is the Dome on the Rock. Muslims claim that to be a holy, holy site. This is a mosque right here. This is the south-facing wall. North-facing wall, east-facing wall. This is the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley. Right here and right here are tunnels to get in. So to get into the Temple Mount, you'd have to go through this tunnel. This is the court of the Gentiles, this main big area right here. Right here would be the court of women. We'll get into that a little bit later. But 
where Jesus is going to, I want us to paint this picture, because where Jesus is going to cleanse the temple is over here. All right, uh, let's go to the next slide. This is another, just another view. We've got up here is the Mount of Olives. You can't really see how steep it is, but it's an incredibly steep mountain. Uh, this is the Temple Mount. Again, you can see how huge it is. Uh, this is the area that, this is actually the ramp to access it these days. Uh, and right here is a guard post where Muslims check to see if you have any religious paraphernalia on you. If you do, they might just rip it up right then and there. In fact, we saw some guys with a yarmulke uh, on their heads, and they kind of slid into their back pocket to hide it. Uh, they were right in front of us, and the guards, the Muslim guards, took it out and just ripped it up right there in front of our faces and said, no, 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 kind of taunting us a little bit. Uh, so this is it. This is the Dome on the Rock again. Uh, this is where the, the Court of the Women would have been. All right, let's go to the next slide. Last slide right here. I just take this slide. This is looking from the south to north. So this is the south wall. There's the Dome on the Rock. Uh, this is the City of David right here. So just this little slide. You can see how thin it is right there, huh? I mean, you can just barely, it's so crazy. It's like 20 steps. This is the Kidron Valley. This is the Mount of Olives. This is going to be running red with blood during the Passover. All right. So those are our slides. So as we think about that, triumphal entry is Sunday. He goes home to Bethany for the night. Monday morning. On the following day when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat of your fruit or fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this is kind of a weird thing, and I've heard a lot of people be like, What? What's going on with that? This is, this is uh, a way, he's giving us a, a, as a way to interpret the cleansing of the temple. He's give, this is the way that we can interpret the cleansing of the temple. So he comes up to this fig tree and leaf. It's springtime. Fig trees typically started to get some buds of fruit that weren't very tasty, but peasants would often eat them. And then they'd get leaves. So the fact that this tree had leaves are, is a sign that it should have the buds. It, do, it won't have figs. It's not the season for figs. Figs will come in the fall. But these little buds were edible. So what's happening here is that it has all of the signs that it should have fruit. Also, if the, if the tree didn't have the buds, it would not have fruit later on. So it has all the signs that it should have fruit, but there's no fruit. So what, what Jesus is doing here is giving us a sign of how to interpret the cleansing of the temple. And because it had all the signs of fruit, it had all the leaf, but no fruit, he passes judgment on it. And that's what's going to happen with the cleansing of the temple. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Let's go back a couple steps on slides. So what's going on here is he enters into the temple. Last night he entered into the temple. He took a look around. Remember, everything Jesus does is strategic. We, oftentimes when we think of the story, we think that he walks in and it takes him by surprise. Oh, no! They're doing this in the temple. I'm so mad. This is a strategic act. He knows exactly what he's doing. So right here is the court of the Gentiles. This is the uh, uh, fortress Antonia. Uh, that's, where, that's where the Roman soldiers are going to be. So he comes in and he starts to cast these people out. And why is he casting them out? Because they are making money 
off of a religious system. They are making money off of what God has commanded them to do. And not only are they making money, but they're jacking up the prices. People from all around the known world were coming to celebrate Passover, and they needed a sacrifice. And in particular, he, he calls out those who sold pigeons. Why is he calling those people out? Because the people who were poor were the ones that bought the pigeons. If you were wealthy, you could afford a better a, a lamb. But only the poor people bought pigeons. And they're ripping off the poor. In God's name, they're ripping off the poor. They're using God as a way to rip people off. And as Jesus walks in, he sees that they have turned what this, what this is, is supposed to represent to the nations about God. And they've twisted it and they've turned it. And what's also in particular about this is it's in the court of the Gentiles. It's not in the court of the women. There's no way it would come to the Holy of Holies. What the Jews were doing was they were taking what they thought were lower people and they were ripping them off. And that's why he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? The Jews thought Gentiles were the second-class citizens. And why not? The Gentiles had been oppressing them for over 400 years. So they thought they were these second-class citizens, and why not just take the court of the Gentiles and turn it into a place where we could rip people off? It no longer became a place where the Gentiles could come and know about God. Instead, it was a place where they could come and make money. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So they go back to Bethany for the night. They wake up on Tuesday. And they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This means that nothing was left. It wasn't just that there wasn't going to be any fruit on it. The tree was gone. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And it shows that Jesus is the final judge. There is no one that will escape his judgment. And that, that saying that's so popular these days, I know, well, I don't know if it's popular now, but I know in the 90s, like a lot of gangster rap had only God can judge me now. It, that's true. God is the final judge, and he is the just judge. And Jesus answered them. So he's going to take this moment as a teaching moment. We've got, this is how to interpret the cleansing of the temple. It is God's judgment on Israel because Israel had the leaves. They had all the signs of spiritual fruit, and yet they were using it to twist and turn and actually turn people off to God. And for that reason, God was coming with judgment upon Israel. So now he's going to use it as a teaching moment. Have faith in God. So this teaching moment starts off with having faith. Trust. Believe. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, he, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now I think that what's going on here is actually hyperbole. Uh, Jesus didn't mean that you will actually be able to move a mountain, but the mountain represented something that was impossible to move. It was this huge physical object, and there's no way you're going to move this thing. But if you have faith, God can make it happen. Therefore, for this reason, because God can make the impossible possible, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. That's the type of faith that we should have when it comes to God. Not, I hope, oh please God, I hope. But we ask and just act like God is already making it happen. And it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness and being forgiven always go hand in hand. We forgive because God first forgave us. We forgive because God first forgave us. Jesus is taking this time to teach them about God making impossible things possible and forgiveness because he knows what's about to happen. The cross is only a few days away. The resurrection, three days after. And then what's going to happen? He knows what these disciples were going to be challenged with. And you know what? It wasn't a whole lot of hope in this life. When you think about Peter, James, John, that wasn't a whole lot of hope. It wasn't like, oh great, we get to preach the gospel and one day we're going to retire in a very comfortable uh, ocean house, beach house. We're not, we're not going to have that. That's not what they were going for. It wasn't a lot of hope in this life. In fact, apostle after apostle is going to get killed and they're going to get killed in brutal, bloody, horrible, tragic ways. And the one that doesn't get killed, he gets boiled in oil. Don't sign me up for that. But then other Christians, and the Christians that Mark is writing to right here, they're going to start getting fed to lions. They're going to be put up on posts and drenched in oil, and that's how they're going to light their city at night. There's not a lot of hope for comfort for these Christians. But what is he encouraging them to do? One, what is impossible can be made possible with God. The, all those hearts that you don't think can believe, they can believe. God is in the business of changing hearts. And sometimes we look at our country and we think, there is no hope. Man, our country's gone off the rocker. It's just crazy. People are believing absolutely insane things, not in touch with reality and calling it science. And we think it's impossible and we begin to get hopeless. 
but with God, all things are possible. Hearts can be changed. Minds can be changed. But secondly, even if minds are not changed, we still need to hold on to forgiveness. So even as, even as the apostles are being killed, there's still forgiveness there. As Stephen, one of the first martyrs, is standing there and he's getting stoned, and as rock after rock pummels his head and blood is gushing, what does he yell? Father, forgive them. And our natural reaction as we start to feel persecution, as we start to see the craziness of this world, our natural reaction is to stand and fight and put up our dukes and we're going to get mad. And God is calling us to something so different. He's calling us to have a heart change and to forgive. As people hate you, to say, Father, forgive them. In the upcoming years, I think cancel culture is only going to get worse. I will not be surprised if people in this room lose their jobs, lose their livelihood, because they profess to be Christians. And the question that we'll have to answer is, will we be willing to forgive? As they throw on hate, will we be willing to say, Father, forgive them? And it can only be done. Forgiveness can only be done. What seems like an impossible task can only be done through prayer and connecting with God. And if you're not following God, if you're not praying, if you're not submitting your life to God, forgiveness will be impossible. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you came to this world, that you gave your life for us, that we would have hope in something far more than this life, that we would have hope that exceeds just being restored and living a comfortable life, that our hope would be an eternal life with you. And as we realize that, give us the strength, Lord, forgive those who would hate us. As persecution ramps up, that we would be willing to say, Lord, forgive them. In your name we pray.